Father God, we worshiped you this morning in song. We worshiped you in the giving of our tithes and offering. And now as we come to your word, we pray that as we listen to it, as we interact with your spirit, with our spirit, and your mind with our mind, I pray, God, that you would just give us anticipation, an anticipation to meet with you this morning, we pray. For we desperately need you. Our world desperately needs you. So help us, Lord Jesus, to honor and glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a warm, warm welcome to those who are joining us online. And if you're visiting with us this morning, as Miranda has said, welcome here. We're glad that you're with us today. We are, we, we are val- you're valued as our guests, and we just want to say thank you for coming and being with us today. I just want to talk today about the whole topic of on our watch. You might be going, well, where did we get that whole concept from? Well, how many of you have ever been on a cruise before and you've been able to go to sleep at night because you know there's somebody at the helm of the ship? Anybody been on a cruise before? Nobody been on a cruise before? Put it on your bucket list. But one of the wonderful things is, is that you can sleep and they keep sailing at the same time. So how do they keep from colliding with other tankers or container ships when they're crossing those shipping lanes? Well... It's because of the words, on my watch. It's a significant term. Now, turn to your neighbor and say, nothing bad will happen to you on my watch. Now turn back and say, I've got your back. On board a ship, The day and night are divided into watches, which are like shifts in the industry. And the officers take turns to be officer of the watch, which means on duty, they're in charge. On a warship, there's usually lieutenants, but on a merchant ship, it's usually the mates. Everything that happens on your watch is your responsibility. So if any accident or wrongdoings occur, it's a bad mark against you, even if you didn't have anything directly to do with it, because you are in charge. And you should have stopped it from happening. Today is we're going to start a new series, a Christmas series, that will help us prepare for this season. I want to consider the key figures in the Christian story, Christmas story, but I want to look at baby Jesus just a little differently than maybe you have before. While I was in Israel, I got a very clear picture of who Jesus was and how they would have encountered those in that holy land during the time of Jesus being on earth. This morning, December the 3rd, 2023, what are you willing to tolerate and what are you willing to allow on your watch? Who will be willing to go without knowing Jesus on your watch? Think about that for a moment. But let me ask you a question. Why do we celebrate Advent? Well, the purpose of Advent is this. The word Advent means coming or arrival. The focus of the entire season is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ in the first Advent and the anticipation of the return of Christ the King in the second Advent. And Pastor John last week wonderfully described Christ our coming King. 
This Advent is far more than simply marking a 2,000-year-old event in history. It's celebrating the truth about God, the revelation of God in Christ, whereby all of creation might be reconciled to God. That is the process in which we now participate and the consummation of which we anticipate. Advent is marked by a spirit of expectation, anticipation, preparation, and longing. There is a yearning for the deliverance from the evils of this world, the first expressed by the Israelite slaves in Egypt as they cried out for their, from their bitter oppression. It is the cry of those who have experienced the tyranny of injustice in the world under the curse of sin, and yet who have hope of delivery by God, who have heard the cries of the oppressed slaves and brought deliverance. It is that hope, however faint at times, and that God, however distant sometimes, which brings to the world the anticipation of a king who will rule with truth and justice and righteousness over his people and over his creation. It's in that hope that once anticipated, we now anticipate anew. The reign of the Holy One, the Anointed One, a Messiah who will bring peace and justice and righteousness to the world. And because of this important truth, especially in the Eastern Orthodox churches, the season of Advent has been a time of fasting and penance for sins similar to the, that of the first Lent. However, different emphasis for the season of Advent has gradually unfolded in much of the rest of the church. And so the season of Advent has become more of a celebration in terms of expectation and anticipation. In the past, two things were key about the Advent. First of all, Christians would be given a time of prayer and fasting. They would take time just praying and fasting as they longed for the coming of the Christ child and then the coming of the Christ King. The second thing was to align themselves with the person and mission of Jesus. Rather than think of the Advent as the coming of the Christ child, we have to erect new means to simply mean the coming of a religious holiday or characterized by simply not misbehaving to be disqualified from presence. Jesus did not come to earth to give you presence, but to give you an opportunity to join him in a revolution. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth as a Canadian. He came to earth as a commando, and there was an edge, and there was a cause, and there was a mission that he would present to the people of Israel that would rock their world. Let me demonstrate to you. If you have your Bible or your app on your phone, turn to Luke chapter 4. And if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there's notes in the message. No, there, 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 <laughs> there's a passage in the message notes. Sorry, I'm feeling the pressure of time. I know, relax, right, Bob? Relax. Say relax. All right, I will. Okay. Read with me what it says at the beginning. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, let me stop you right here. What do we know about Nazareth? Nazareth is a town named after the Greek form of the Hebrew nester, which means a shoot or a sprout. The town was not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. It was the home of Mary and Joseph and where Jesus grew up from a boy into adulthood. It was there that he brought his public ministry into the synagogue, and we read about it in Matthew 13, which brought great disdain from his hometown crowd. 
Nazareth is located among the southern ridges of the Lebanon mountain range, overlooking the Jezreel Valley about 14 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. The largest modern city today was nothing like the tiny Orthodox village of Jesus' day. In those days, it was an insignificant agricultural village not far from a major trade route to Egypt called the Via Maris, which is like our number one highway that crosses the country from east to west. Go on with me in your notes. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Now let's stop right here. The synagogue. When I've been over in Israel, I've had a chance to visit many synagogues when I was there. And you need to understand a typical order of service in those synagogues. And here's how it would go. There's seven parts to it. Just listen. One, there would be at least ten men for the service to start. The second thing is, the congregation would recite the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Lord, our Lord the One. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the Shema. And then they would stand as the scroll was brought from the Torah closet. And then someone would read from the Torah, the first five books. And then someone would read from the prophets. And then someone would discuss the readings. And then the service would close with a benediction. I say that to you to understand the context that we're going to read in a moment. You see, Jesus gets up to read, and they've already said the Shema. They've already ushered in the law, and they've read from the law, and now it was time to, learn, to read from the prophets. So follow along in your notes. And he stood up to read. That was the custom. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What he did was he read Isaiah 61. What you need to know is that everyone would have known what that passage was all about. It's about the coming Messiah. But he stopped before the words, if you go to Isaiah chapter 61, he stopped at the words, and the day of the vengeance of our God. You see, the, the Jews were living under tremendous oppression from the Romans, and Yahweh had promised a deliverer. They knew the scriptures. They were looking for someone who would come and liberate them from the oppression and defeat the Romans and send them packing, just like he had done for the Israelites when they had left Egypt. Have you ever thought, that since you're a Christian, you should never have a problem or pain? Speaking of pain, I heard about a lame duck present who met with his successor in the Oval Office. And near the end of the orientation, he presented the incoming leader with three numbered envelopes with specific instructions to open them in order when difficulties, great difficulties arise. After the first president completed his honeymoon period with the media and the public, the nation experienced an economic downturn and he opened the first envelope. And inside was a card that read, blame me. So he did, criticizing the former president. After a while, social upheaval brought about criticism and the, and the domestic crisis was happening and the, the president opened the second envelope. And inside the card, it read, blame my party. 
So if you've ever watched American politics, they don't have a problem doing that. So he did do that. He blamed the party. About a year later, a foreign policy resulted in serious problems, and the president opened up the third envelope, and inside it was this note, prepare three envelopes. <laughs> Jesus had a different mission, not of military might, but of a merciful servant. Look what it says in your notes. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Underline this in your notes. The eyes of everyone in this synagogue were fastened on him. And he began explaining by saying these words to them. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everybody knew what was, what was in Isaiah 61. Everybody knew it was about the Messiah. And Jesus has just declared that he's it. The Jews were preparing for an advent that would relieve their physical oppression to make their life easier, to restore them as a political champion. But what did Jesus declare to them? The advent that we're celebrating today in some ways is just like the Jews of old. We just want to focus on the coming of the baby Jesus, exchange gift and go on living some of us are self-centered lives. But the upside of the events of this past year in politics, as we've understood as Canadians, is that we have a voice, and we've been able to, to realize that because there's so much at risk. We need to continue to have hope, and it's time to turn this machine around, not throw sand in the gears. This Christmas is a time for us to wake up from our stupor and discover anew the person of Jesus and his mission. Are you looking for a savior that will sprinkle angel dust over you and cause your life to be without problems and pain? In a moment, we're going to read about someone who loved God, someone who served God, and didn't experience deliverance. Jesus said in Isaiah 61, the kingdom of heaven is here. I am the Messiah. In verse 8 it says, for I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoings. In my faithfulness I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. You see, Jesus says to his hometown crowd, in the synagogue, which he had probably gone to all of his life, I'm the one. Watch me. They'd heard about what Jesus had done in Capernaum and he had performed miracles and they scratched their heads and said, isn't this Joseph's son? Let's see the miracles here, boy. Because we know all about you. Jesus then quotes the saying that a prophet is not accepted in his own town. I don't know what it's like to you to go back to your hometown. But whenever I would go back to Ontario, my family because I'm a pastor, I guess they decided that I was good for funerals and weddings. And whenever I would go back, they would never call me pastor. They would call me Robbie. Don't ever call me Robbie. Because to, me, to them, I'm just a little boy that walked among them. You see, then Jesus confronts them with this parable the real issue is here that it's unbelief. One of the ways Jesus taught was by contrast, and so he quotes them two sides of the great 
two, pardon me, two stories from the great prophet Elijah. He states that there was a famine throughout the land and God sent Elijah to a foreigner, a widow in Sepharath, to find someone who would believe in him and she and her son were saved. And then he tells them the story of many people in Israel who were, Israel who were sick with leprosy and yet God sent Elijah to heal Nathan from Assyria. Now the Jews considered this time in the life of Israel to be the darkest of their history. There was no faith in all the land at all, and God had to go outside of the people of Israel to the foreigners to find people who had faith. Jesus had exposed their desire for power and prestige within their hearts, and he said, this is not the kingdom I bring to earth. I am the light of the world. Look at what it says in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Here's the good news this morning. Light has shone into the darkness, and the darkness will be, never be able to overcome the light. Review your history. The light of truth has defeated some of the darkest times of our history, of your history personally, even of this church. Why? Because Jesus came to the world to start a revolution, a revolution of mercy. That little baby, Jesus, that was born in Bethlehem came to blaze a trail that would inspire Christians to hear the truth, count the cost, pick up the torch, and expose the darkness in the world. I want to invite you today to be a part of the revolutionary, of this revolution of change. But are we different? Our followers of Jesus, are we different from those who are living without hope? I hope that we are. I'm always confronted with this at Christmas time, even in the darkest times on, on Black Friday, which the day after American Thanksgiving, people spend billions of dollars, and on Cyber Monday, even more billions of dollars on Christmas themselves. When the rest of the world looks at North America and sees the numbers that people in North America spend on Christmas, do you know what they think? We think we have a democracy, but they think we're just greedy. You see, there are over 7.8 billion people in the world, and most people in the world live in poverty. 85% of the world live on less than $30 a day. Two-thirds live on less than $10 a day, and every tenth person lives on less than $1.90 per day. The biggest issue threatening people in this world is safe drinking water, and it has been estimated that to eradicate this problem worldwide, it would only cost a billion dollars. So why should we be revolutionaries this morning? You might be thinking this morning, well, Bob, why should I join the Lord's army? Good question. Perhaps another way of asking it is, how could you not join his army? The older I get, the more I more I'm convinced that I have to fulfill the mission that God's called me to, and it's basically this, not somehow, but triumphantly. God did not call me to go through this life, but to make a difference, to be one of his foot soldiers, to follow his orders, to be, be so con consumed with asking, with not, to, to not be so consumed, pardon me, with asking God why, but being obedient to simply say, yes, Lord, use me. You see, we should be revolutionaries because, in your notes, Jesus proved that he was the Messiah. 
You see, Jesus had settled in the region of Galilee and was teaching his disciples when John the Baptist said a few things that ticked off King Herod. Apparently, he exposed some darkness in Herod's life, and this didn't sit well with him. So John is hearing in prison about the ministry of Jesus. You got the picture here. John's in prison. He believed a Messiah would topple Herod and probably liberate the Jews, which means he would be free. But look what it says in your notes. When John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, he'd already heard he was the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. That was enough proof for John. But notice if you read in Matthew chapter 14 that John doesn't get liberated, he gets beheaded. We must know that being a part of a revolution does not guarantee that our life is without pain or problems. The difference is we're not alone in our pain and our problems. Amen? We must be convinced that Jesus did prove he was the Messiah. And when we, when we need to learn that being a part of his mission requires that we engage in Jesus' priorities. So what were his priorities? In your notes, Jesus prioritized taking care of the poor and oppressed. Throughout Scripture, God makes it clear that God-fearing people need to have an awareness of the less fortunate around us, but not just an awareness, but that we act. There is a passage of Scripture that many Christians have used to dismiss any responsibility for the poor, those people without money. Jesus is in Bethany, and he's on his way to the cross. And if you notice the details, he's in the home of a leper which made him ceremoniously unclean. And a woman breaks a very expensive alabaster jar of perfume and pours it all over Jesus' feet. Now, here's what I know. That would have made an incredible impact on that room. The disciples got mad. And by the way, if you read the passage, it was only Judas that got mad. Remember, he was the treasurer. He said, what a waste. At least we, were, we could have sold it and gave the money to the poor. Oh, how a noble thing that was. It wasn't exactly what Judas wanted. Judas would live out of the treasury, so he was thinking about himself, not about the poor. And Jesus says these words, look in your notes. The poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me. I've heard messages that state, see, Jesus said, forget the poor and just focus on me. You see, that would just let us off the hook. And we could justify turning the other way or not putting any money in a cup or giving some money to a person during lunch hour. But let me give you a valuable insight here. By the age of eight years old, every Jewish child had memorized the Torah. By eight years old, the first five books of the Bible I mean, if you got a Bible, just go and look at how much that is. They would know it. By the age of 10, they would have memorized the prophets. And if they were 
a top student by the age of 18, they would have memorized the whole Old Testament. I'm reminded of a story of one of the mentors that would take people on tours in Israel, and they took a bunch of tour, potential tour leaders to a, to a Jewish school, elementary school, and the kids were playing outside. And so we brought the, the potential tourists, tour guides up to the edge of the fence and said, you should ask them a question about Scripture just to see what they know. So one guy thought it was real smart. He said, well, where's the call of Abraham? And one of the, one of the kids laughed at him. Everybody knows where that is. Try something harder. He said, okay. Tell me where the birds and what bird was mentioned in the Old Testament. And from Genesis all the way through, they went bird after bird after bird after bird after bird after bird. And then the mentor turned around to his tour guides and says, and we think we know scripture. These people knew the scripture so that when Jesus said this statement, the poor will always be with you, they knew what it meant. He did not have to quote it word for word. They knew Jesus was talking about, in your notes, the year of jubilee and the year of canceling debts. At the end of seven years, the Jewish people were commanded to cancel debts. If I owed you money and had to sell my land or possessions to you, at the end of those seven years, I would get it back and I would have a fresh start. Now, how many of you would love to have a fresh start from the debts that you have? That's what he's talking about. Look what it says. However, there need to be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance he will richly bless you. Then he goes on to verses 7 to 11 and continues to outline how they were to provide for the poor. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 15, 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. Did you hear it? We are to be open-handed towards those around us who are poor. See, in your notes it says that Jesus didn't absolve us from responsibility. He's not saying don't take care of the poor and just think about me. He was saying, no, you already have a precision to take care of the poor, but I'm only going to be here temporarily for you. So take care of them. So what do we do in your notes? We need the poor to help us become generous people. That's what we need. We need to be generous people to those. And we, the poor need us so that they could see the heart of God as we give like he gave. You see, Jesus came into the world to start a revolution. As God's people, we need to repent for not revealing the heart of God to the poor, but only portraying a hardened heart. And I want to enlist you this Christmas season and beyond to do two things that we need to do for the people who are needy around us and in this city. So how do we respond to these truths? Two ways. Number one, we need to start providing for the poor and by through the food bank. We made arrangements that we're going to be able to collect food for the food bank. We'll be able to do it until the 17th of this month, and then we're going to take it all down. But here's just a simple way. When you come to church, bring something that you can give towards that. 
And the second step is through the Christmas Eve service. You see, may it be known as a church that we be a church that no one in our town goes without food, not on our watch. But I think it would be even greater cause than that this Christmas if we believe that Jesus proved he was a Messiah and he makes us, his, we make his priorities ours, then we understand the last point that Jesus commits us and equips us to this revolution. Jesus did not leave us alone to try to compete, complete this on our own in our own strength. John records for us that Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the east wall of the city of Jerusalem. And there he prayed for his disciples to catch and change that they would know the world and, uh, and that they would go into these world and change the world with these revolutionary principles. He was thinking of you and I, and he says to his Father in heaven, you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Henry Nouwen says this, most people act as if they simply drop down in creation and have to entertain themselves until they die. But we Christians were sent into the world by God just as Jesus was, and each one of us has a mission in life. Jesus prays to his Father for his followers, saying, as you have sent me into the world, I sent, th I sent them into the world. We seldom fully realize that we are sent to fulfill God-given tasks. We're to provide for the poor. We're to provide people an opportunity to see Jesus. And Jesus utters these very words to his disciples in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This Christmas, may we be passionate about inviting many to hear about the true message of Jesus on our watch. This Christmas, may it be our passion not to be for the power to topple a political regime, but to make and to make our lives easier. But many, we become passionate to join hand in hand, arm in arm, devoted followers of Jesus, that by our actions, the unchurched, the poor, oppressed people bound up, the helpless people, the spiritually blind, those seeking for answers, that they would say of us, the spirit of the Lord is upon them, they bring good news. They give us hope. Could I also say that there's one more way that we could do this and demonstrate that we have the heart of God? That's by coming and serving at the Chief White Cap, White Cap concert. By ushering and greeting and by smiling, letting people know that they val we value them doesn't cost you anything but time. You see, Jesus came to the world to start a revolution. That can start by you saying, here I am, Lord, use me. This Advent season is a Sunday of hope. Jesus is the hope of the world, and the church is the hope of the world, and as believers, you and I are the hope of the world. We are hope dealers. If you, don't listen, if you don't know this hope today, you can't. Say, Jesus, help me to experience this hope. And he'll reveal it to you. Will you pray with me?
Worship team, won't you join me here? Lord Jesus, you are the hope of this mixed up, divided, conflicted world. Thank you for being our hope and calling us all to make sure that those we rub shoulders with during this season, that they will hear about this hope on our watch. Holy Spirit, fill us with your hope. Give us eyes to see hope in hopeless situations. May those we meet this week on our watch see your hope in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment, we're going to turn to another method that Jesus gave us to remember the hope that he gave us. For those who are visiting with us today, I'm thrilled that you're here. And as Christ followers, we, he gives us a way to remember his love and sacrifice, to provide a way to be reconciled with a holy God. If you don't know Jesus, simply watch and listen to the message of communion. Because we want to celebrate symbolically what Jesus has done for us. I want to invite the communion servers to come and serve us. Please take a cup, pass the tray to the person next to you. Let's celebrate as we prepare to celebrate our living hope, but hold on to the cup and all lead us together as a congregation.